to go my very like with you? Welcome, everybody. Good to have you all. And uh, let me make a prediction. I'm not a prophet, but I can predict this because it happens every year. You see the full, you see the full class? Get about three, four weeks into it. Just look around. 
and see who the dropouts are going to be. Just make sure. <laughs> and, I, and I have that effect on people. The first night we start a new semester, everybody's like, yeah, I'm going to learn the Bible. And it's like, nah, after we get three or four weeks into it. So we'll see. We'll see who the holdouts are and who the dropouts are. But I hope you guys are all able to make it all the way through. Very glad to have you for this class called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. Starts at 7.15. I apologize if you tried to get here by 7 because we do advertise our midweek starting at 7. That's because the kids program and the team program start at 7. Gives you time to get some coffee and then uh, come in here at 7.15. So if you have kids, you'll need to get here by 7, but otherwise the class starts at, at 7.15. You should have had on your seat when you come in, you should have had a notebook, a pen, and also one sheet that looks like this. At the top says spiritual growth process. I just want to call your attention to that sheet first of all. And those of you that have been in our uh, newcomer's orientation, which many of you have, this is page 17 in the notebook that you get for that, uh, so it may look familiar. But I'm calling your attention to it, one, to remind you if you've been through that, and some of you have not. And this is, in a nutshell, on one page, what our church tries to accomplish. At the top is our mission statement. We are here to help people do three things, learn about God, love Him and others, live for His purpose. Learn, love, live. And we've got ministries then designed for each of those, learning, loving, and living, and that's what you see depicted there. And in the middle of the learning about God section, right in the middle there, you see the green and gray, and there are two classes listed, how to get the most out of your Bible, this one, and master plan for life. And next to that, it says core classes. So the reason I'm pointing that out is because you are in one of our core classes that we try to urge everybody who comes into our church to take so that everyone gets familiar with the Bible, and so that we know that everybody who comes into our church has that, that background and that knowledge. Some of you have that and have acquired it other ways, so as we go through, then some, uh, perhaps a lot of what we do will be review for you, but I hope it'll still be helpful, and I appreciate you being willing to take the class, even if you have a, a lot of that background. It does help us to know that we have at least a minimum uh, level of knowledge that people in our church have so we can then build on that uh, as, we, as we move ahead. We have one other core class that we do every fall, so every other fall I should say. So this fall we're doing how to get the most, next fall we'll do the next one, Master Plan for Life, and then we just rotate them every year that way. So if you've never taken Master Plan for Life, that one is what we call a systematic theology for regular people, and it goes through the major doctrines of the Bible, God, Bible, of uh, man, of sin, of Christ, salvation, the church, and the end times, all of those. That one's a two-semester class. This one's just a one-semester class. But I just wanted you to know why it is that we urged you, everybody, if you've not taken How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, that's why, because this is a core class for us. And we're going to take one semester, 12 weeks together, to go through an overview of the Bible and a couple of other things. So the notebook that you have, if you'll turn to page one in the notebook. There are three sections to this, this course. And the one that's going to take up the bulk of our time is going to be a, a survey of the Bible. So you see there at the top of page one, it says section one, survey of, of the Bible, and then a couple of other sections. So what does a, a survey involve? How to get the most out of your Bible has these three major sections. Survey, then 
how to interpret the Bible, and then how to apply the Bible. At least half of our course is devoted to the first of these, a survey of the Bible. Twelve weeks, and we will take at least eight of those twelve for a survey of the Bible, and then the last three or four on some principles of interpretation and then how to, how to apply the Bible. So what is a, a survey course? Say there in that second paragraph that it covers matters like language and history, dates in which the events occurred and the books were written, and authorship. It also provides some information regarding the content and teaching of Scripture. And when we say the, the content of Scripture, we, we want to make sure as you go th- we go through the survey that you come away from it at least knowing the sections of the Bible. Uh, there are 66 books to the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So we're not going to go through the content of each of the 66, but at least you'll know what the sections are that those books fit into and what those sections are about. So there's the content, uh, there's, there's knowing something about the sections and the chronology where those, where those books fit into the flow of the narrative of God's work in, in his world. So content and then teaching. And that is we want to come away from these eight weeks of doing the survey with an understanding of the one story that is the, the Bible's, uh, the Bible's uh, narrative. There's an overall story in the Bible from the beginning to the end and everything in between, and you and I fit into it. And I hope you'll see that uh, by the time we do these eight weeks together. It is my experience that too many Christians may spend a lot of time in church, but they have bits and pieces of the Bible. And in terms of how the story fits together, a lot of people never do quite, quite get that. So that's what we mean by getting the teaching of the Bible, the overall story uh, that God has laid out for us. So why then should you take time, like you have, made arrangements to get here from work, get the kids here, if you have the kids, get them deposited in various parts of the building here, uh, you know, and you had to run in, and some nights you're going to have to contend with the train. You guys all know about the train. We hate the train. We curse the train. The train is demon-possessed, okay? So we have, we, have, we have an exorcism for the train, okay? So if you live north of the train tracks, then you are to find your way to I-75 and then go to the Gibraltar Road exit. And if you get off there and then go over to 4th Street, then you never hit the train tracks. You never get caught by the train. So I'm telling you this the very first night. I'm telling you the train is cursed. And if you get caught by the train, now having been told, you are cursed as, as well. <laughs> and if you come in late, and I have a bunch of you coming in late, and I know that there's a train, I will call you out in front of the five or ten people who actually made it here on time following the, the instructions. So really, you guys, it's a sacrifice to come in the middle of the week uh, on a Wednesday night. Why, why should you do all that? So why should we care to put the time and effort into gaining an overview of the Bible's message? Well, stated simply, the answer is because God cared to produce and preserve it for us. And since God himself has seen fit to provide scripture to us, it's incumbent on us to do all that we can to ascertain the Bible's message and then to live by it. And so there's a sense, friends, in which it's a real ingratitude toward God. 
for him to have taken pains to give us his communication to us, but then for us not to take the time to learn what that is and how to get around, how to get around in it. And it's also, you know, so I'm not, it's not just on you, but rather it's a matter of malpractice, I think, on the part of leadership to not provide that overview for folks who want to take it. And I'm glad that you've chosen to, to do that. So what is it that God has done to give the Bible to us? He's done a number of things, and we're going to spend most of tonight going through those. What has God done to give us the Bible? The first one is he's inspired it. Scripture has been inspired by God. Now, where do we get that idea of inspired? That is a, a doctrine, the inspiration of Scripture. From where does it come? It comes from this passage listed there, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 in the NIV, the New International Version, and that's the one from which I preach and, and we teach. There are other good, accurate translations of the Bible, but that's, that's the one we use. And it says, all Scripture is God breathed. Now, how would you get inspiration out of that? Well, the King James Version says all Scripture is given, and there's the word, by inspiration of God. And the King James goes back several hundred years, as, as most of you know, and so we've gotten that word, inspiration, from the King James. So why does the King James say it's inspiration, but the NIV says God breathed? What's the relationship between those? Well, the Greek word that's translated inspiration or translated God breathe is this. Here's, here's the Greek word, theonoustos, theonoustos. And that is a combination of two Greek words, theos, and you guys already know that Greek word, uh, even if you didn't know you knew it, because like you know what an atheist is. An atheist, a theist is somebody who believes in God. An atheist, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God, no God. So theism is a belief in God. A theist is one who believes in God. Theology is the study of God, doctrines surrounding God. So theos means God. And then the other part of that, theonoustos, noustos, means breath. It also means wind or air or spirit. It's translated that way in the New Testament. So we get our English word uh, pneumonia from noustos because that's, that's a breathing issue, right? That's a respiratory issue. Uh, pneumatic brakes, like on a, on a truck, those are brakes that instead of being hydraulic brakes that work by fluid, they work by air. And so they're pneumatic. So that idea of noustos has to do with air, breath, spirit, wind. So that's why the NIV is actually literally translating that word, theonoustos, God breathed. The King James says inspiration. And the spirate part, you know, is related to the breath piece. You know, a, a, um, spir to spirate means to breathe. When you stop spirating, you have expired. You're dead. Okay, that's what that means. So inspiration means still that idea of breath. But here, here's the, the problem that we sometimes have when we think of that word inspiration. We, we focus on, because of the word in, it seems like it's focused on in whom the breathing happened. 
in whom the, the, the spy rating happened, inspiration. Uh, so all scripture has come because of some people being inspired is the idea that we, we come away with. And that's a little unfortunate because that's actually not the point that Paul's making in 2 Timothy 3 or that Peter is, is making in another passage we quote a little bit later in 2 Peter chapter 3 where we talk about how, we, how the Bible came to us. Uh, the focus is not on to whom it came, but from whom it came. Uh, it would be better for you to actually think of it as all Scripture is given by expiration of God, except when we talk about someone expiring, that means them dying, and so that, would, that doesn't quite sound right either. But I just want you to get the idea that the focus of inspiration is much less on the people who wrote it than the God who gave it to them. It's from God. Its source is God. It came from Him. All Scripture came from God, is the product of the breath of God. So the, the emphasis is not on the writer, but the writing. So when the passage says both King James and NIV, all Scripture, the Greek word that's translated Scripture is graphe. And so we get graffiti from it. It's the script. It's the graffiti. It's the writing. And that's the emphasis then of the verse. It's the product, not so much the process. There is a process. We'll talk about it a bit, but it's the product. And that final product that we have in Scripture, in the writing, came from God. That's what we mean by inspiration. So God cared enough to do that, to, to give us the Bible, to produce the product that is the Bible, that is, that is Scripture. Now, because it's on the product and not the process uh, so much, that helps you explain some things that otherwise people have a tough time with. You come across places in the Bible where the process is not what you would expect. Like if you're in the Old Testament, first part of your Bible, and you're in Kings and Chronicles, you'll find a phrase that says, you know, it, it talks about how long this king lived, and then he died, how long he reigned, and all of that. And then it says these records have come to us from the annals of the kings of Israel. And so you read that, and you go, the annals of the kings of Israel? What's that? And who were those guys? Were they inspired? The people who wrote the annals of the kings of Israel? And the annals of the kings of Israel were, were, would be like the equivalent for us to go to City Hall in your town and look for a history of all the mayors that you've had. Or go to the National Archives and see the, the history of all you know, the senators we've had and all the presidents we've had and, and so on. Um, that's what the annals of the kings of Israel. You go to you know, downtown Jerusalem, go to City Hall in Jerusalem and, and check out how many kings and how long they were there. But were those people who wrote those things anything special? The answer is no. Were they particularly holy people? No. So it wasn't, it wasn't the, that process of 
those records being gathered, but rather, as we're going to see in a bit, God overseeing, superintending, making sure that what got pulled together was exactly what he wanted. And sometimes it included stuff like the annals of the kings of Israel. Or you're in the book of Proverbs and you're reading along, and then Solomon has a section called the 30 sayings of the wise. The 30 sayings of the wise. And then somebody comes along and tells you, hey, you know, those 30 sayings of the wise sound very much like 33 sayings of an Egyptian philosopher who lived before Solomon. And then your faith is shaken. Because you go, Solomon ripped off an Egyptian philosopher? He plagiarized some Egyptian philosopher. But you see, if you had the wrong idea of inspiration, that could really shake you, couldn't it? Because this Egyptian philosopher is nobody special. He's a pagan. But it's less about through whom it came. And it's more about from whom it came. God overseeing the process so that what was gathered and written was precisely what he wanted. And we're going to see that God took some pains to make sure that that, that happened. So God went out of his way to give us the Bible, and that includes then inspiration. And you have in both the Old Testament and the New Testament statements about the fact that these writings came from God. Old Testament passages on inspiration. Exodus 24, Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. Where the Lord says in Deuteronomy 27, write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones that you have set up. For the prophet Isaiah, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll for the days to come, it may be an everlasting witness. To the prophet Jeremiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. So God is interested in the writing. He's interested in the script, the scripture, in the New Testament, the the graphe. And then you've got New Testament passages as well. The one we've already seen, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various, at many times and in various ways. So you, that's the book of Hebrews. That's in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. And at the time the writer of Hebrews writes that, the New Testament's not completed yet. So when he talks about these prophets being spoken to at various times and in various ways, he's talking about the first part that's already completed, the Old Testament. And if you go through the Old Testament and you read through it, you indeed find that. That at various times and various ways, God revealed truth. He would directly speak sometimes, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions, sometimes through uh, an angelic messenger, various, various ways. Again, in your New Testament, top of page 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you, and they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So here's a passage saying that, again, first part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the prophets produced the, the Bible, but it was, it was from God. It was the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ at work in them to, to produce this, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, using secondary sources, like I've, already, like I've already mentioned. 
2 Peter chapter 1, prophecy never had its origin. Now notice what the, notice what the emphasis is, the origin, where it came from. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God. The origin is from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, when it says they were carried along, they were, they were born along by the Holy Spirit. And if you, as you read that, you might get the idea that the way God gave the Bible to the people he chose to, to write it, that the way he did that was kind of like dictation. And I've actually heard people say that that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is God saying, Paul, take a letter. Or, or David, take a letter, as he wrote a number of the Psalms. Or Moses, take a letter. So it's God dictating. That's not actually what happened. Because as you read through the Bible, you read these 66 books, as we'll see, written by 40 different authors over a bunch of centuries, they're all really different. And they all write differently. In fact, they all write quite differently. If you read, if you read a letter from uh, John, the Apostle John, there's the Gospel of John, then he's got three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he wrote the very last book of the Bible, so he wrote five of them, Revelation. And then you've got the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 letters in, in your New Testament. If you read those side by side, and especially if you read them in their original language in Greek, they're, they're quite different. Uh, so they each have their own personalities. They each have their own styles. If it was God saying, just take a letter, you would expect it would all kind of sound the same. But they don't sound the same. They're, they're, they're quite different. So God was using these people for sure, but the emphasis is on the origin that they spoke from God. And when it says they were carried along then, it's not dictating a letter, but rather they were, some translations say, born along. And that word that's translated carried or borne along is a word that was used of ships on water and the water taking them to their destination. And that's what God did with the writers of Scripture. He took them from beginning to end, the product, the writing, to the destination that he had in, had in mind. And when I say for, from beginning to end, when do, when do you think that started? When do you think that began with these writers? You know, a David, a Moses, a, an Isaiah, a Paul, a Peter. When did it begin? Well, you know, for God, this stuff goes way back. <laughs> like, we get the idea that God, that God gets involved at the time he needs something. But God already knew what was going to happen at that moment in time a long time ago, am I right? Like how long ago? That would have been eternity. In eternity past, God has known everything. When you take Master Plan for Life, we talk about the omniscience of, of God. But as part of God's uh, omniscience, He knows everything in a flash of intuition. He knows it all. He's known it all. And so I say in Master Plan for Life, hey, has it ever occurred to you that it has never occurred to God? God has never had a moment when he went, oh, <laughs> never. So he's preparing these people like he's preparing everything else from eternity past. 
He knows exactly who he's going to use. He knows how he's going to use them. He knows all the experiences that they are going to undergo so that they are just the right person at just the right time to write down just what he wants. So he says about the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before he was ever born in his, his mother's womb, God says, I knew you. And God prepared Jeremiah for the work then that Jeremiah ultimately did, and he did that with, with all of them, carried them along. So here's a definition then of inspiration. Inspiration is God's, and there's an important word, superintending. He's overseeing the human author so that Using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs, his revelation to man. And that's pretty much got it all. And I can say that because it's not my definition. It's Charles Ryrie's, as you can see there. But I think very helpful, and it covers all of the bases that I've just tried to cover for you. God overseeing, bringing it all together. In the... It says the original autographs. So that means in the original papyrus that a Paul would write on or a Peter would write on. That at, at that moment, this is, this is God's word and it is without error. Now we're going to talk in just a few minutes about how that then came to us. Because God uses them at the point in time where he's prepared them for their entire lives to be the person that he needs them to be, to write what he wants written. He superintends all of that. But then how does he preserve that and, and get it to us? We'll, we'll see that in a bit. So God took pains to get the Bible to us. Therefore, we should take pains to know what it says and try to live by it. And the first thing he did was inspire it, produce it, give us the product, the writing, the scripture. Second thing is that Scripture is inerrant. So this, this, this overseeing, this superintending that God did in inspiring the Bible and breathing out the Bible, giving it to us, has a corollary that goes with it. That's what we say there in your notes. Inerrancy is a corollary of inspiration because if it came from God, then it's impossible that it be an error. So the fact that it came from God then means by its very nature that it's, it's without error. God cannot lie. There's no reason that God would get it wrong. Why would God get it wrong? What limitation is there in God such that he would mess it up? Of course, there is none. And his moral character is such that he's not going to lie. Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1, straight up, God does not lie. So your Bible is without error in its content from God. And it is infallible. This is Jesus speaking in John 10, 35. The scripture cannot be broken. Now, what's the difference between being without error and being infallible? Because when you, you hear those two words, they sound very similar maybe even synonymous. They're not exactly the same. That's why we've separated them here. Inerrant means no errors. Infallible means it cannot fail. And an another way to, to put that, if you care to write next to it, and we gave you a pen. Did you guys all see your pen when you came in? 
That's a CBC pen, by the way. And those are the greatest pens, not because they got CBC on them. Those are just really good pens. They last forever. Yeah, aren't they? Is that, is that the truth? It's the truth, I'm telling you. But I've had people come into the church and get, you know, and want to like get change the pen to save the church a couple of nickels. And we actually did that once. We changed the pen. And for like two years we had these inferior pens. And they and they fell apart. And you know, I hate to curse a brother or a sister who came up with these pens, but it was it was a temptation for me, okay? When the when the pens fell apart. I'm kidding, obviously, but but don't ever come up with that idea that we want an inferior pen. We love the pens that we, that we have, okay? And you'll love the pens so much that here's the reason I'm bringing all that up. You'll be tempted to steal more pens. <laughs> Gave you the pen. There'll be other times you get the pen. If you acquire five or, or ten pens through honest means, those are our gift to you. If you steal others. There are stories in the Bible about people who do that. And what happens to them, okay? We're going to have an amnesty Sunday for, for people to bring in pens and no questions asked and just put them up front, okay? All right, I feel better. Um, so you can write down next to infallible that it has full authority. That's what we mean by infallible. The Bible has full authority. So it's without error and it has complete authority. So think about it. You could have someone who says, says something, gives a speech, and the, and the speech is perfect. There, there are no errors in the speech. So it's inerrant. But that doesn't mean it has authority. It doesn't mean anybody has to listen to it. Anybody's obligated to abide by it. That's what we mean by infallible. That what the Scripture says is binding. It has full authority. So... It not only has no errors, what it says is to be carried out. What it prohibits is to be avoided. And then, fourthly, Scripture is preserved. So it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and it has been preserved. We had that original autographs idea in the definition of inspiration. But then, you know, the last of those autographs was written about 2,000 years ago. So we've had 2,000 years for your Bible to come down to you, to come down to me. So God has then have, had to superintend and providentially preserve his word. Now, preservation is another corollary of inspiration. If God's going to go out of his way to give it and produce it and to work in the lives of all of these people to, to make it happen, then it follows that he's going to preserve it for the people to whom it for whom it's intended. But the Bible says as much that God has, has done this. Here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.18. And he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's the NIV. Here's the King James. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So in the NIV, you've got not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. And in the King James, you've got a jot or a tittle. So smallest letter, least stroke of a pen, jot, tittle. What, what's the relationship between those? So here's, here's what a jot is. The NIV says the smallest letter. 
So in, um, in Hebrew, which is, you know, the Old Testament, that's what the law was written in, Hebrew. So in Hebrew, there's a letter called a yod. It's the Y sound. And a yod is, looks exactly like a, um, an apostrophe. It's just a little curve, it's a mark. It's the smallest letter. So anglicized yod or jot. So in the King James, when it says jot, it's talking about a yod. And in the NIV, it just says the smallest letter, the smallest Hebrew letter, the Y sound, a yod. But then there is this least stroke of a pen that the NIV says, or a tittle. Least stroke of a pen, a tittle. What is that? What is a tittle? So in, in Hebrew, you've got two letters that look almost exactly the same. I would write them on the board, but that board just got washed. I love the way it looks right now. So I'm not, I'm not writing on the board. Just watch, okay? So here's a, here's a resh. It's the R sound in Hebrew, and here's how it looks. That's it. It's just a 90-degree... That's it. That's the resh, R sound. Then there's another Hebrew letter. It looks exactly like it, with one minor difference. And it's the dalit, that's the D sound, and it looks like this. Instead of just, you know, I just, I just keep, my, keep the pen on the paper and just go straight down, that's the resh. But for the dalit, you go across, and then you go down. And there's just this little thing sticking out at the corner. And the little thing sticking out the corner is the tittle, the least stroke of a pen. It's the difference between a race and a dollar, that little thing at the, that hangs out at the, at the corner. And so here's Jesus saying, hey, everything that God has said in the law is going to come, come to pass. And at the time that Jesus says that, by the way, Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, most of you know. But at the time he says that about the law, how long has the law been around? We're going to see a little bit later that the law has been around for about 1,500 years at that point. So it's quite an amazing statement, is it not? For Jesus to say that this is going to happen just as it was said in amazing, in amazing detail. But Jesus said some other things about the preservation of the, the scriptures that God produced. One of those is in Luke, um, Luke 24. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in, and notice these three things, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So that passage is equating these three things to the scriptures. And the scriptures that existed at the time Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. What are those? Again, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And what are the three sections? The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And lo and behold, the Old Testament, first part of your Bible, was and to this day still is understood by Orthodox Jews as having three sections to it. The Law, the Prophets, and sometimes called the Writings. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The writings has five books in it. The largest of those five books and the first of those five books is Psalms. So sometimes it's called the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. Sometimes the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. 
But when those three are together, it's referring to the whole Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that everything that was written in those is going to be fulfilled uh, about me. And he's again saying this long after the Old Testament has been completed and all three of those sections are, are done. I have a Hebrew uh, Bible. I have a Hebrew Bible on my shelf. And I should have brought it in and showed it to you. But on the cover, there are three Hebrew words. So just like you might have a Bible on the cover, it might say Holy Bible. On the front of this Hebrew Bible, it has these three Hebrew words. And instead of them going from left to right, they go from right to left. You read backwards in, in Hebrew. And here are the three words. Torah, Nabi'im, and Ketubim. Now, Torah, you, you guys might know one Hebrew word. Or another one, Shalom. You know, peace. But, um, but Torah, the law. And then Nabi'im, that is the prophets. And the Ketubim is the writings. Right on the front, it has these three divisions. To this day, that's the way Jews understand their, their Old Testament. And Jesus says it's been preserved in, t in its totality. In another place, Jesus got uh, even, I think, a bit more specific because he says in Luke 11.51, he also says this in Matthew 23, but in Luke 11.51, he's castigating, as he did many times, the religious leaders who opposed him. And he was saying that you religious leaders who hate me and want to kill me and ultimately conspired to do that, as we know, that you are guilty of the blood of all the prophets. You want to kill me because you have the same kind of hatred that your forefathers had for the prophets before me. You're guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The blood of Abel. First murder in human history. First murder then in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. So the, the death, the execution of Abel occurred in the book of Genesis, right? First book. And then you've got the blood of Zechariah. Now this is not Zechariah the prophet. There's a book in your Old Testament called Zechariah. It's a different Zechariah. There were a lot of Zacharias. But this is a different Zechariah. And he was killed. Now, if, you've, if you're like me, my dad was a pastor. So one of the things that I did, and I wasn't sure why they had me doing it, but over the years I've been very glad that I was forced to memorize stuff, memorize the books of the Bible, memorize verses in the Bible. And then it came in handy when I became, became a pastor. But if you've memorized the books of the Old Testament, you know it starts with Genesis, but it ends, ours ends with Malachi. The 39th book is Malachi. So from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, you think Zechariah was killed in the book of Malachi. No. He was, he was killed. His death is recorded in the book of 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles is, you know, in the first third of your Old Testament. So why does he pick that? Here's why. Because the Jewish arrangement of the books, even though it has the same books, and it starts with Genesis, guess what it ends with? Second Chronicles. 
the Bible that Jesus had started with Genesis and ended with Second Chronicles. And he said, you guys are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets. In effect, what he's saying is from the beginning to the end. Now that beginning to the end piece is important, the end piece especially. Because we all agree about, you know, the, we all know about the beginning, Genesis. But then there's the end, Second Chronicles, the 39 books that are in these three sections of law, uh, prophets, and writings. And then that's the end of the Old Testament. Whether you arrange it with Malachi being the last book or Second Chronicles being back, that's it. That's the end of the Old Testament. And then later is going to come the beginning of the New Testament. But there's 400 years in between where there aren't any books of the Bible that are written. 400 years. Called the intertestamental period. The period in between the two testaments. The end of the old, beginning of the new, 400 years. So that's the way it truly is. We'll see that in a bit. But did you all know that in Roman Catholicism, instead of 66 books, there are 73. So there's an extra seven books. And the extra seven are an extra seven appended to the Old Testament. So instead of 39 and 27, you have 46 and 27. 46 books in the Roman Catholic Old Testament. Those seven books were all written during that 400-year period between the end of the old and beginning of the new. Now, why does that matter? Because here you got Jesus on the other side of that. After the end of the Old Testament, after the 400-year period, now the Messiah comes. The New Testament begins with his birth, as, as we'll see when we do our survey. And he's making some comments about the content of, of God's Word before He came. And He makes those comments and He says things like, God's Word is the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, what's that consist of? 39 books. And God's Word, from beginning to end, goes from Genesis to, in the Jewish arrangement, Second Chronicles. 39 books. So where's the other seven? Because... Jesus had the other seven. The other seven had already been written. Remember, they were written during that period in between. Jesus didn't acknowledge them as God's word. As a matter of fact, he excluded them. The end is with the blood of Zechariah. It consists of these three sections that only have the 39 books, not 46. And so he excluded them, and he never quoted from them as he quotes quoted over and over uh, from the Old Testament scriptures to prove who he was. So God preserved his word, and Jesus verified that God's word was preserved for us, the Old Testament preserved. All right, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, some people say, Roman Catholicism actually says, that the reason you know the books of the Bible that you have in your Bible are supposed to be there is because the church said so. Church councils met to define what the books of the Bible were supposed to be. Well, there was no church council that met for the Old Testament. 
Okay? And Jesus confirmed the parameters of the Old Testament. One. And then there's the, the New Testament. And as the New Testament itself is being written in the first century, 2,000 years ago, as it's being written, because it's being written by the people that Jesus authorized to write it, namely the apostles and their associates, then when they wrote it, those were recognized to be God's word as they were writing it. No counsel, not waiting around a few centuries for somebody to define it. And at the bottom of page two, you have an example of that. Here's Peter, one of the 12 apostles. And Peter says, our dear brother Paul. So he's, he's now writing, he's talking about one of the other apostles, Paul. Peter talking about Paul. Our dear brother Paul wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. And he, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Now, please notice this last phrase, as they do the other. You guys see that last word? Scriptures. So what is Peter comparing or including Paul's writings in? What's he calling them? Scripture. The writings. The Holy, remember the all Scripture is given by inspiration of God? Remember Jesus saying back in Luke 24 that as he talked, he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, the writings. And then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Scripture is a term for the authoritative writings. It was the term to describe the Old Testament writings. And now here's Peter with the New Testament saying, at the time these things are being written, Paul's letters are Scripture. And they, some people distort them as they do the other, the other Scriptures. So there was no council that, that met for any of that. You have, you know, Paul writing in his own letters, and he's saying, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if anyone thinks that they are spiritual, let them understand that the things that I am writing to you are the Word of God. He understood that what he was writing was the Word of God. Now, why? Because he was Christ's authorized representative to write it. Let me remind you of that, and then we'll, we'll move on to page 3. But let me remind you of that, that Paul, Peter, the apostles were Christ's authorized representatives to produce his, his word. So do you remember that the night before Jesus was crucified, that on the night before he was crucified, the apostle John in the Gospel of John devotes five chapters of the Gospel of John, five full chapters to that one night. So from chapter 13, John 13, to John 17, it's all about one night. And it starts in John 13 with uh, a, a, a passage that most of us are familiar with, where Jesus is with the apostles in the upper room, and they have the Last Supper. And he institutes what we know as the Lord's Table, communion. But he's preparing them for what's going to happen now the next day. And then the next chapter, chapter 14, he says, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I am, 
going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. So I want to comfort you. Yes, I've come to sacrifice myself for you. But understand, I'm going to come again. So stop letting your hearts be troubled. And so for the next few chapters, he's now trying to prepare them for what's going to happen the next day. And part of that preparation is to say, I'm going to send, to, send you someone else, another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, Jesus says, going to guide you into all truth. And, I'm quoting, guide you into all truth, that's a quote. And he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I told you. Wow, who gets that? Who gets special unction from, from Jesus to remember everything that he told you? Any of you guys remember everything? I already know the answer to this. You know why? Because we're not apostles. And why do the apostles need to do this? Because the apostles are Jesus' special emissaries who are going to write it down later. And they're going to have perfect recall to write it down. So Jesus pre-authenticates the writings of the apostles. Before they even write them, you're going to be able to, you're going to, be able to do this. So special are the apostles that they have special qualifications. They had to be someone who was with Jesus after he had raised from the dead. Nobody here fits that. So if you ever watch cable TV and somebody says, I'm apostle so-and-so, okay? You get to the last book of your Bible, very last chapter of the last book, the New Jerusalem, the dimensions of the city and the walls and all of that, and it says that the city has 12 foundations. And on those 12 foundations, sides of the foundation are, are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And by the way, they're just called the 12. If you're just called the 12, you know you're in a special group and people know who you are. So God produced his word. He inspired it. It's without error because it came from God. It has full authority. It's infallible because it came from God. He has preserved it. He bothered to give it to us and therefore he's bothered to providentially make sure that we, that we have it in our day, both Old and, and New Testament. Now, with regard to the accuracy of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus already authenticated the full accuracy of the Old Testament, even though the last book of the Old Testament had been written 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. He verified that. But even manuscript evidence has done that for us, too. I mean, if you need more than Jesus, well, okay. Here's some manuscript evidence. Um, you, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered in 1947. And prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament we had were from about 900 A.D. That's like 900 years after Jesus. So we didn't have any terribly old copies of the, the Old Testament. Now, there was still every reason to believe in the accuracy of the Old Testament. Jesus had verified it for us. And also there's the process of copying manuscripts 
that the Old Testament scribes, who that was their job that they went through, and it was a meticulous process that they went through in order to avoid errors. And if they made more than three errors on a single page, they had to destroy the entire page and start over again. So we knew they were accurate, but still we didn't have any, we didn't have any very uh, old copies. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's this shepherd boy, you know, trying to chase down his wandering sheep. He goes into a cave. He throws a rock in the cave to try to chase it out. He hears some pottery break. He goes in there. There's broken pottery, and there's these rolls of paper <laughs> in there. And it's the scrolls. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they're, and they're preserved for centuries because they're in this arid climate by the, by the Dead Sea. And so scholars start studying these things. And now we've got Old Testament manuscripts going back to 250 B.C. So 1,100 years older than what we had before. And lo and behold, guess what they look like? They look like what we already had. Copied meticulously over all that time. So what about, what about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we have 5,000 extant manuscripts of the, of the New Testament, 5,000. I say extant. It's not a word you use all the time. Extant instead of existing. Because if I say 5,000 existing, there might be another 1,000. There might be another 5,000 that we'll discover, right? The truth is, I, we know of 5,000 that we've got our hands on. So extant doesn't just mean existing. It means existing and known. There may be more existing. 5,000 extant manuscripts. And they go back nearly 2,000 years, some of them. Uh, I had the privilege of going to the manuscript collection at the University of Michigan several years ago in Ann Arbor. Did you all know that the University of Michigan has the fifth largest collection of New Testament manuscripts in the world? Fifth largest collection in the world. And our very own Dr. Combs, who's teaching behind the wall here, uh, is a bona fide manuscript expert. And he gives, he's given tours of the manuscript exhibit at the University of Michigan. I had the chance to go with him. In fact, years ago, we took people from our church there to go and see it. And so there's this piece, you know, it's this fragment from Ephesians chapter 1, under glass. And it's dated... 120 A.D. And you read it. It's written in Greek, but you read it, and it's exactly like, you translate it exactly like what you have in your NIV or your New American Standard. So God has amazingly preserved his, his word for us. If you look at page 3, then. So why then do we need that's, you know, what God's done to give us the Bible, and that's why we ought to take the time to survey it and learn about it. But we need a course on the Bible because it can be an intimidating book, and that's due in part to its size and its age. It's a big book and it's old. You get a big old book, and that can be intimidating. It has uh, 1,189 chapters in it. So, you know, that alone is intimidating. And then it's divided up with all the verses. The chapters and the verses came later than the original writings, but those help us index. They help us find stuff. 
but it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a big book. And it's 66 individual books, 39 of them in the Old Testament. They were written over a period, those 39, of about 1,000 years. Genesis, the first book of your Bible, around the mid-15th century B.C., and then Malachi, that ends our Old Testament, 5th century B.C. And then you've got your New Testament, 27 books, written in about four decades, between A.D. 50 and, and 90. And the languages in which the Old and New Testament were written in, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Hebrew developed from the Canaanite language spoken in Palestine from 2000 B.C. onward. 99% of your Old Testament is in Hebrew. Why Hebrew? Because it was the language spoken by, by Israel. Little bits written in Aramaic. Takes its name from the Arameans or the people of Aram. It's a land of Abraham's ancestors called Mesopotamia by the Greeks. It's where modern-day Iraq is. It was the universal language of the ancient world from the 8th century B.C. till the 4th century. The Jews picked it up while they were in captivity. So we're going to see as we do our survey that God's people fail on many occasions to do what God said. And as a result of that, calamity often comes upon them. One of those calamities is that they are removed from the Holy Land, the land that God gave them, to a foreign land. That foreign land was Babylon, again, modern-day Iraq, and they spoke Aramaic there. And that all happened in the 5th century. So you've got 268 verses, most of them in Daniel, that are written in Aramaic. Now, why would most of them be in Daniel? Because Daniel was one of the people carted off to Babylon, where they spoke Aramaic. And Aramaic was still being spoken by Jews in the days of Jesus. And in fact, when, as we're going to see when we do our survey, when God intervenes to allow his people to be brought back to the Holy Land under the leadership of people whose names you find in your Old Testament, like Ezra and Nehemiah. You guys remember that? Or maybe you've read about that. When, when Ezra comes back, Ezra's the religious leader, he now has to reteach the law in Hebrew to the people because they've forgotten Hebrew. Because they've been in Babylon and, and Aramaic. And then lastly on page, page four. Your New Testament's written entirely in Greek. Why Greek? It was the universal language of the ancient world in the days of Jesus and the apostles. The universality of Greek was a result of the conquests of Alexander the Great in the 300s B.C., the 4th century B.C. And the language that was spoken, the common language of, in Greek that was spoken was a particular kind of Greek called, called Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, K-O-I-N-E, K-O-I-N-E. We gave you a pen, K-O-I-N-E, <laughs> Koine Greek, and, and that means common Greek, as opposed to classical Greek, highbrow Greek. This was the language of common people, and your New Testament was written in the language of common people. 
And all of that was the case. You had this universal common language because of a guy named Alexander the Great who is doing all his world conquests. He dies at the age of 32, lamenting 32, lamenting that there are no more worlds to conquer. But all the while, this guy, Alexander, creating the Greek Empire and having Greek culture, including its language, cover the better part of the then-known world, is all doing God's bidding a few hundred years before the Messiah comes to prepare for the New Testament. All right. It's 8.15. It'll get colder as the semester goes on, okay? That poor air conditioner is doing its best, okay? Uh, but one hour, I don't like to brag, but we're dead on, okay? All right, see you next week.